0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join us today. Here we are on a Thursday afternoon, or at least it's afternoon here on the west coast of California. And I'm coming to you from a little room in my back garden where we have a little video studio set up. And what we do on Thursday afternoons is we have a time where uh, I'm available to answer your questions. Maybe it's a question about the Bible. Maybe it's a question about the Christian life. Maybe it's a question about whatever, but I don't have the answers to everything. But what I do know or think I know, I might be able to share with you. And I am not afraid at all to tell you that I don't know because there's a lot more things in this world that I don't know than I do know. But happy to share whatever knowledge I may have that could be helpful to you. On today's question and answer, we've got something very special going on. We've got a giveaway, and what I mean by a giveaway is that we're going to give away a little gift, a little Playmobil Martin Luther figure. This is the box, and uh, whoever wins today is going to get this exact box. This is what the little figure looks like here. Just a cute little Playmobil, Martin Luther figure, something to hang on a shelf or tell your kids about or your grandkids or whatever. Um, But I do need to, as I'm told by our team, read the rules about this giveaway. So today, I'm reading from the script that Annie wrote. Thank you, Annie. Today, to bless somebody, during this Christmas season, we're hosting a giveaway. The prize is a Playmobil figure of Martin Luther. To enter, type your location—that's your country, state, city, whatever you prefer—into the live chat, and we hope that you've already subscribed to our YouTube channel. If you have not yet subscribed, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. We also love it, too, if you click notifications, but we will announce on the video— Today, on the live chat and in person, uh, when the entries are closed, that'll be about 10 minutes before the end of today's program, Uh, so about 50 minutes or so from now, and the winner is going to be randomly selected, and we're going to announce the winner live on today's program, so please stick around to the end of the show. If you win, you're going to have to give us some way to contact you. You don't have to give your real name online. We'll just work it all out with your screen name and we'll give you an email address and all the rest of it. Now, if you're one of our TWR 360 viewers, feel free to stop by our YouTube channel to enter. You will not be able to enter directly from the input on TWR 360. The official rules for this are posted in the video description. And of course, we want to hear your questions as well. It's not just about... Uh, Winning a cute little prize today, but that's part of it today. We also want to be able to answer your questions. So, what are we talking about today? are lead question comes from Susan, who sent it in via email. This is what Susan asks. Susan said, Hi, Pastor David. What scriptures support the idea that we don't deserve God's grace? Okay, well, Susan, happy to answer your question. Here's sort of the quick, very quick answer. Yes, the Bible really says that we don't deserve God's grace. And then Susan or somebody else might say, well, David, okay, show me the scriptures. And I will in just a moment. But you you need to understand something foundational. A lot of this understanding is contained in the definition of the New Testament word for grace, uh, in Greek, if I'm pronouncing correctly, that is biblical Greek, Karas. Now, uh most of us are aware that the Bible wasn't written in English, it wasn't written in ancient Syriac, not originally. Uh, it wasn't written in, you know, Arabic originally, it wasn't written in Latin originally. It was translated into those languages, or whatever is your primary language, translated into those languages first. However, if we know something about the vocabulary of the biblical languages, that would be biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek, sometimes biblical Greek is called Koine Greek, which just as a way of saying common Greek, it's sort of used to distinguish it from either classical Greek or to distinguish it from modern Greek, that's which they speak in the country of Greece today. So, the ancient Greek word, the New Testament word for grace is charis. Now, the very definition of charis has four basic features. Number one, it's something that brought happiness and satisfaction. It was something that was beautiful. It was could be expressed with supernatural power and help. And it was something that was an undeserved kindness, approval, or acceptance. So again, chorus could be applied to something that made you happy, that made you joyful. If you went to a chariot race and the entertainment of the context was, contest was pleasing to you, then you could say that chariot race has chorus because it cost you joy. Uh, chorus was also carried with it the idea of beauty, because beauty gives us pleasure. It it awakens joy within us. Even today, we say that a dancer or an athlete who moves beautifully is graceful. That is, they're full of grace. Chorus was also used in ancient times in association with supernatural power or aid. In the literature of ancient Greece, Chorus was sometimes seen a sort of a mystical power that could supernaturally influence the personality of men and women with its goodness, with its beauty. It was common for the ancient pagans to think that the gods or God would bestow the supernatural grace upon man. But here's the fourth idea and the one I really want to dial into. Chorus carried within it the idea of unmerited, undeserved favor or an attitude of kindness. You see, it was regarded as the active expression of unselfish aid and help. The, the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle defined the word this way. He said was this helpfulness towards someone in need, not in return for anything, nor that the helper may get anything, but for the sake of the person who is helped. In other words, chorus is utterly others-centered. So, it could be used for an unexpected blessing or a treat, such as a gift that you weren't expecting or a benefit of some kind. And the reason for giving a chorus gift was always found in the giver, not in the one who receives it. Now, this is what's remarkable. This is just baked in, so to speak, that ancient Greek word chorus. The ancient Greeks used that word, and they knew of grace in that sense. They valued grace, but they could only think of grace as being exchanged between friends. The idea that someone might show this great favor, this great beauty, this great supernatural help and undeserved kindness to an enemy, that was completely foreign to them. So, Susan, let let me give you the first answer. The the scriptural idea, the scriptural proof, so to speak, that grace means unmerited favor, undeserved favor, it's just in the Word. It's what the Word means in at least one of its significant aspects. But there are a few verses that also spell this out for us. I don't think there's a lot... Because, again, it was inherent in the definition of the word at the time. But here are a couple of examples. Here's Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words... Here's the distinction between works and grace. Now, tie that together with Romans chapter 11, verse 6, where Paul says this, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You see, Paul, by explaining there in Romans 11, 6, he's explaining something that for his original audience was obvious. They just needed to be reminded of it but that the principle of grace and the principle of works sort of contradicted each other. If you deserve a gift and I give it to you, then it's not grace. It's only grace if it's given to the undeserving. It's only given if the reason for giving is in the giver, not in the person who receives. That's the real reason. Now, uh, we're going to give away this uh, little toy that I'm holding in my hand today, and uh, I I suppose that in some sense, we're going to give this away on the principle of grace. There's nothing anybody has to do to deserve it other than just tell us where to send it. That's what we need your name and location for. So, again, this, this whole idea is just wrapped up inherently in the idea of grace. Now, Taking all this into account, we can say what grace is not. And please listen carefully to this. Grace is not giving to someone because they're a good person. Well, No, there's something in that person that's causing it. Grace is not giving to somebody because they're trying to be good. Grace is not giving to somebody to persuade them to be good. Grace is not giving to somebody because they promised to be good. Grace is not giving somebody a lot when really they just deserve a little bit. Grace is only grace if the giving happens because the giver wants to give. And the reasons for giving are found in the giver, not in the one who receives. I find it fascinating. I think you can tell I'm excited about this. I I wrote a book on grace. Uh, You know, I really should do a better job promoting my own material. I don't see it behind me immediately. Uh, but, but I wrote a book about the grace of God. Uh, you can get it on Amazon or whatever, by Kindle, by regular. Uh, Standing in Grace is the name of, I love talking about God's grace. But you see, grace doesn't care if someone deserves or not. Because the reasons for giving under grace are in the giver. Grace does not tell you, you don't deserve this. The law tells you that. Grace doesn't care if you deserve it or not because the reasons for giving are found in the giver. Grace deals with us completely apart from the principle of deserving. By its very nature, grace doesn't look for a reason in the one who receives. Now, let let me just bring up before you a few other verses from John chapter 1 because this is the Christmas season. And uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, speaking about how grace came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, You're probably familiar with these verses. They're wonderful. And it's a great time of year for us to remember them. John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. That's how Jesus came to humanity, full of grace and truth. And that's something we can receive and count on. Just one more verse here. Again, just, it's a great time of year for us to consider this. John chapter one, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This absolutely amazing, giving love of God comes first and foremost to us through Jesus Christ. And we are ever, ever so grateful for it. All right, let me do a few things here. I want to remind you one more time about our giveaway because we have people who join us throughout this. Uh, to enter the giveaway, this is what you need to do. You need to, uh in your screen name, of course, we have your screen name, in the live chat on our YouTube channel, uh, TWR360, you're going to have to go and put something in on the chat if you care to enter this. Uh, tell us where you're from, where you're listening from it could be a country, it could be a city, it could be a state or a province. Tell us where you're watching from. We will collect all the screen names and the locations. Uh, About 10 minutes before we're finished today, we'll just do a random selection from those. And from that random selection, we will select a winner. And let me tell you something, uh, that winner can be from anywhere in the world. This is small enough and light enough that even though Shipping to internationally from the United States right now is really expensive. We will send this wherever it should go around the world. So uh, you just enter that and we'll give it. You're going to be responsible for whatever customs. I hope it would be nothing. I I do want to say a couple other things, though. This we're going to give away. This is a gift several years ago from Barbara. Thank you, Barbara. It's a Martin Luther nutcracker. So we have a Martin Luther Playmobil figure And a Martin Luther nutcracker. There he is with uh, one of the documents he wrote. And I guess the nutcracker works with his arms, something like that. Uh, Not giving away the Martin Luther nutcracker. And I do have one more thing to say before we jump on over to our questions that have come in on the live chat. Um, Someone who joins us on our weekly broadcast, two people... Are my dear mother and father in law in Sweden, Nils and Gunnar Bergström. And I I would like you, our YouTube audience, and you can do this whether it's live or whether it's uh, you you catch it later. Would you please pray for the health of my mother in law, Gunnar? She's in the hospital right now. Uh, She's been getting some good treatment from the doctors, and they expect her to be released before Christmas. We're very grateful for that, or maybe on Christmas Eve day. Very, very grateful for that. Uh, But of course, she's going to have some recovery involved as well. So if you would please pray for my mother-in-law, would you lift her up? And uh, I don't have any idea if she's able to view this from her hospital room, but if she can, good night, we love you. So glad that you're a part of these weekly Q&As and uh, we've been tracking your situation and we're praying for you and we love you. All our love from myself and, of course, our YouTube channel family. All right. With that, let's go now to the questions. I suppose I got to click over to that. Here we go for our questions. Uh, Cindy asks this. How do I explain to someone that it's not necessary to be baptized in water in order to be saved? My friend doesn't understand spirit baptism versus water baptism. Cindy, the question you're asking, I find to be sort of delicate to deal with because the last thing in the world we want to tell or teach anybody is that baptism, water baptism, I mean being immersed in water for baptism, the last thing in the world we want to do is imply that it's not important. Let me tell you, friends, being baptized in water for a follower of Jesus Christ is not only important, I will say it is essential. Now, listen to me carefully. It's not essential for salvation, but it is essential for obedience. And to have disobedient followers of Jesus Christ is not good. It's not good for people to be disobedient followers of Jesus. And, of course, this is a matter where there is great controversy historically and today uh, with different denominations and different theological perspectives. But, but I'll just tell you what I believe. I'm here on this question and answer time, so I don't mind telling you what I believe. I believe that baptism as an infant is not a genuine baptism. I believe in what is sometimes called in theology, credo-baptism, baptism of believers, those who can make a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. There's some credible evidence. Again, God alone only knows but at least there's some credible reason to believe that that person has repented and believed. Those should be baptized. Now, sometimes fairly young children can genuinely repent and believe, but certainly not infants. (laughs) Certainly not, you know, a a two-month-old. I believe that the practice of infant baptism is unbiblical. And so I do not hesitate to say at all That if somebody was baptized in a church tradition, whether it be a Roman Catholic church tradition, an Orthodox church tradition, a a Protestant church tradition that baptizes babies, I I would tell that person, I think you need to be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. I I would love to talk more about that because I'm a little bit passionate about this issue. And um, I, I think that there is a often. Unacknowledged danger in the infant baptism, sometimes called paedo-baptism, you know the beginning paedo having to do with children, the infant baptism or the paedo-baptist position. I think that there are some often unacknowledged dangers, practically speaking, in that position, most notably being, I would argue. And if somebody wanted to debate the point, I guess I'd be happy to debate it. I would argue that there are thousands, if not millions of souls in hell who thought they were saved, who were told they were saved because they were baptized as babies. Okay, so that's another issue. How do you, t- you tell them, showing them the scriptures, that if they... Claim to be an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. They need to do what Jesus told them to do, and that's be baptized. D- Jesus told them to do this. So, so, yes, it, they, they don't need to. We can think of situations where people uh, were not baptized and were saved. The famous example everybody brings up is the thief on the cross. I don't know if that's such a great example. I think probably a greater example is the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. When he wrote to them later in 1 Corinthians, he said um, that he was glad that he did not baptize any of them. And if baptism were essential for salvation, I don't see how Paul could be glad that he didn't baptize to anybody. Uh, so, yes, there is a distinction there. But baptism is an essential act for obedience. But I don't think that it's absolutely essential for salvation, but you you can start getting into the argument here. How disobedient can you be as a follower of Jesus Christ and still be saved? Now, obviously, we're not saved because of our obedience, but there should be a change of life, a change of heart. But if you want to know, Cindy, the, the basis for being able to say, that, that it's possible for someone to be saved and not be baptized. N- number one, I would say Paul in first Corinthians, where, uh, he was glad that he had not baptized some, you know, some examples we have, uh, of the thief on the cross. Uh, the other examples that we have of, um, baptism being a work of righteousness. And in Titus, it says, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Um, so these and some other passages give us this idea, but we have to walk this line. It's very easy to act as if baptism is like this purely optional, not very important, get around to it when you want to, doesn't really matter kind of thing. And then there's another extreme that says, not only do you have to be baptized, but you have to be baptized according to a certain formula uh, among a certain group or you're not saved. I think that there's biblically speaking, a middle way through that. I I don't always favor a middle way. Sometimes the middle way is wrong, but in this, I I think we see extremes on both sides. Hope that's helpful for you, Cindy. Let me go to the next question from G Testimony. I was wondering if you could share some ways that God has moved in your life in the miraculous or prophetic and how those things have affected your faith. Uh, Well, G, I, I would just give one example. I mean, I suppose if I thought I could come up with a few, but when my wife and I were praying about whether I should, we should leave uh, our ministry in Southern California and move to Germany to be part of starting a new International Bible College there, we we were seeking the Lord, and God gave a very dramatic and direct word of prophecy through a friend of ours that we had not had contact with for many many months and sort of out of the blue she contacted uh us and I returned her call and uh, she said David I think god's given a, a scripture uh for me to give to you would you like to hear it she was very appropriate about it she wasn't you know like in the prophetic weird at all, she was very just normal about it. And I said, "Well, sure. I, I please tell it to me." And so uh, she read to me Deuteronomy. You know, I, I get this. It's either Deuteronomy chapter two verse four or chapter four verse two, where God speaking to Israel says, and this was from the NIV: uh, "You've made your way around this hill country long enough. Now turn north." Well, this was a day that my wife and I were specifically fasting for guidance as to whether or not we should move our whole family to Germany to help start this Bible college. And uh, so, obviously, I I said, wow, that's kind of relevant. And and I I could just stress that this woman had absolutely no knowledge that we were considering this. Nobody knew. And uh, so, I asked her, I said, hey, well, do, do you have a sense that God is speaking anything to us through it? She said, well, do you really want to know? I said, yes, I want to know. And she said, I think that God is giving you this verse because he wants you to move to Europe, uh, that he's really going to bless you as he goes. He's got ministry for you there and he wants you to do it soon. And I said, thank you and received that as it was a very dramatic prophetic word delivered through a passage of scripture applied to our life uh, that was not by any means the source of our calling to Germany. No, not at all. I don't know if I would trust such a thing as a source of our calling, but it was a confirmation of the calling and the timing that we should go. And we did go, and I think God blessed it in many, many ways. Those were amazing years of wonderful ministry that we had in Germany, the seven years that we were there, and we developed many friends and relationships that we value to this very present day. Uh, they are wonderful relationships for us to have. So, um, just all that to say, that's one example I could give. Uh, I, I don't think those things are commonplace in my life, not by any means. Uh, that was unusual. But I, I'll just be very uh, straightforward with you, G. Um, I, I, I find great strength, great inspiration, great illumination through the Bible. It, it doesn't mean that uh, if God were to speak to me in another way, I wouldn't hear it. Obviously, I did. And I would in the future, but um, I I don't I don't run around looking for such words. And if I could say that very dramatic word, so to speak, came uh, not when I was seeking any specific supernatural. I was seeking God's will, no doubt about it. But I wasn't seeking any supernatural word, and God brought. I I'm made nervous, very nervous, by people who kind of run to from supposed prophet to supposed prophet looking for a a word from God. Um, Even though I do believe that God speaks in such ways. But um, we we shouldn't run after such things. God knows where we are. He can bring them to us when he has such a thing. And that's exactly what he did in my circumstance. So thank you for that. Gee, let me go on to the next question from N. N. Why does God test our faith? Is there a pass-fail of his testing? What happens if we fail? Well, N, God tests our faith. Uh, so, well, first of all, God doesn't need to know our spiritual condition. He knows it. He knows exactly where we're at in every way. But God often tests us or allows a test to come into our life so that we will know our spiritual state. Because it's very common for us to be kind of blind to where it is. So that's one purpose. Uh, another reason why God may allow us to be tested is simply to increase our faith, our reliance upon Him. Uh, it, it's really important for us to trust God every day and to trust Him more and more. And sometimes God will allow hardship or pressing or trial, stress, whatever, to cause us to rely upon him more and more. Another reason why God may allow a testing of our faith is so that we can do what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, so that we may comfort others with the comfort that we have received from God. And so really, it just is involved with our spiritual growth with our growth and grace, if you want to use this term, with our discipleship, with our sanctification. You know, God has work to do in us while we walk this earth for us to face challenges that we won't face in heaven. Look, do you realize that now is the only time that you will be able to stand strong for Jesus Christ in the midst of adversity and testing? You're not going to have those same adversity uh, adversaries and testings in heaven, but only now. So, really, it's for our spiritual growth. And what what happens if we fail a test? Well, look, I mean, God's dealing with every one of His children is very personal, very very individual. But I will say this: that um, oftentimes, if we pass or fail, if we fail a test, we we may have to take that test again, so to speak. God will allow us to work through the same or similar circumstances where we have to trust him all over again. I've experienced that in my own life, and I've seen God work a similar way in the lives of many other people that way. So, thank you for your question there, N. I'm going to go now to a bottom thing. Uh, It's a little thing passed on from my mother-in-law. Gunnel says, I'm watching for my hospital bed in Sweden. Thank everybody for praying for me. I sure need you and have a blessed Christmas. Well, wonderful, Gunnel. I'm so happy that you're able to tune in from the hospital there in Kung So, God bless you and uh, wonderful. I'm happy that we can get our YouTube community praying for you. Thank you, Gunnel. On to the next question from Joshua says evangelizing has always been something I believe I've been called to, but what if there's not many who really want to join? I know I see examples of the disciples going out two by two. Joshua, I think what you're dealing with is you're dealing with here the difference between the ideal and the real. Let me put it this way. I believe that ideally, uh, when we go out and evangelize, it's great to do it in teams, two by two, two or three people, whatever it would be. That's a wonderful way to do it. Praise the Lord when we can. But it's probably better to do evangelism alone than to do no evangelism. So, I I think just you say, well, ideally, if there was anybody else with me, I'll do it, but I'm not going to let the fact that there is nobody with me uh, to go out and evangelize, I'm not going to let that stop me. Um, Now, I I would say that is a general principle, I suppose there could be some circumstances where it would be unwise for an individual to go out and evangelize alone. Safety concerns, compromise concerns, I don't know what they might be. So, what I've given you is a general answer, maybe tailor it to a specific situation. But in general, we have an ideal of doing something with another person, two by two. But if we can't do the ideal, then we do what we can do. There's a lot of things like that in the Christian life. We see the ideal, and maybe the ideal is immediately unreachable, but we do the best we can, and always pointing towards that ideal. Here's something else that I would just encourage you with, Joshua. Um, Take care that you don't allow yourself to become overly frustrated or angry with your less evangelistically-minded friends. Um, I know that this is a danger. This is something that happens from time to time. Sometimes people just get very frustrated. They wonder why other people don't have the same passion for evangelism. And I know it's just kind of something of a trap. So Joshua, don't don't let the devil rip you off with uh, either making you feel very angry, frustrated, sometimes even bitter with other people. Well, they, they don't care about evangelism. I wish everybody cared about evangelism the way I do. Look, it's just a very common thing that with whatever we are gifted with in God's family, we kind of think everybody should be gifted with it. So that's kind of a thing to think about there. And, uh, you know, just do exactly what Jesus said. Pray that the Lord would send workers for the harvest. Thank you for that question there, Joshua. Next question comes from Joanne who asks... There is a Western author gaining interest that claims he is a Stoic. Did Paul have interaction with the Stoics? The claim is that the I am translation was based on Roman Stoicism known to Paul. Any input? Uh, Joanne, listen, I'm going to give you ill-informed input, although... Just recently, I was going through my commentary on the book of Acts, where Paul is in Athens. What is that? Uh, Acts chapter 18, maybe? And in Acts chapter 18, uh, where Paul is in Athens, uh, he has interaction with the Stoics. The Stoics are mentioned there in the book of Acts. So, um, I I just want to remind you, yeah... uh, I deal a little bit with some of the ideas of Stoicism in my commentary there. You could go and look at it, and I believe it's Acts chapter 18. Uh, If not, it's 17. I don't think it's 19. That's Ephesus. But what what I'm just saying is, um, I, I can tell you with great confidence that Paul did not draw the idea of the I am from Stoicism. The idea of the I am is something very much drawn from Jewish thought, That's how God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, as the I am, and then translated into Greek with its own phrasing. Uh, So, I would be very confident in saying that Paul did not develop his idea of the I am from Stoicism or from Greek thought at all. That's something that very much comes from Hebraic thought. So, sorry I couldn't do more for you there, uh, Joanne, but let me go on to the next question from Alfredo. Asks, why do we say that Jesus died and suffered for our sins when other people died and suffered in the same manner of being hung and nailed to a cross? Alfredo, that is such a good question. Look, the physical death of Jesus does not set him apart from humanity. Many people have died horrible, terrible, tortured deaths. And I would even go so far to say that physically speaking, crucifixion is not the worst way to die. There are worse, more torture. I, I won't get into describing such tortures. I've read about them from different cultures here and there, things they would do. But let me say, crucifixion is a terrible way to die, But in the depravity of humanity, we've been able to think of even worse ways to die than crucifixion. And, Alfredo, we should never forget that on the day Jesus was crucified, there were two other guys being crucified, one on his right, one on his left. They were right there. So yes, crucifixion was a terrible way to die, but it wasn't a particularly unique way to die, number one. And uh, we can think of worse ways to die. All that to say this, what set the death of Jesus apart from the death that any other person ever died are two things. Number one, he was the sinless, spotless son of God who bore the sins of the world in his own body, as it says there in 1 Peter. He bore our sins in his own body. There was a spiritual dynamic in the transaction that Jesus did on the cross where he received our sin and he bestows upon us his righteousness that made his death unlike and had a spiritual dimension of agony and weight that no other death has ever had on this earth. That's one aspect. Here's the other aspect, is that Jesus dying as the spotless son of God, he had never known in any way any kind of separation between himself and his father. Now look, we we tread on holy ground here. We, We dare not exaggerate a separation between the father and the son on the cross. Because the Bible tells us that even in dying on the cross, that the father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Yet, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22, but he wasn't only quoting Psalm 22 as some detached academic, oh, let's all remember Psalm 22. No, he was living it. And there's a strange paradox there. But all this was all the more impactful upon Jesus because he had never known sin. And though on the cross he did not become a sinner, he, as it were, to use Paul's language, he became sin. And that sin was judged in his person. So I guess just to say this, it's the, um, it's the whole dynamic of the spiritual weight that Jesus bore on the cross more than the physical. Hope that's helpful for you there, um, Alfredo. Uh, I do got to give one more mention here. Look, it's just a fun little toy, but we're giving it away. Uh, you can read the details, the rules in the details of the video if anybody cares to look at it. And uh, what you need to give us is your name and where you're from, and we'll send you one of these Playmobil Luthers, if you're the winner. We're not going to send everybody that. We're going to pick one winner out of it today, and uh, you'll get this little figurine of Martin Luther. These were made for the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, That's why it says in here, Luther 2017, which was a great time over there in Germany. Okay, anyway. Uh, Next question comes from Jordan, who asks, If Noah built the ark by faith and lived before Abraham, why isn't he considered the father of faith instead of Abraham? His faith lesser than Abraham's or some other reason? Well, Jordan, that's a good question. When Abraham is called the father of faith, In no way is that trying to say that Abraham was the first person to have faith, nor necessarily that nobody else had faith in a specific measure. But this is what's different. Abraham is called the father of faith because to him was given that great promise that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Where is that? Um, Genesis chapter 15 somewhere. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, that's pretty big deal, don't you think? That, that there, especially as attention is drawn to that in the New Testament fulfillment of it, quoted by the Apostle Paul, that that makes Abraham the father of the faithful. He was the first of whom it was specifically said. Now, you, you could argue, for example, Enoch lived before the time of Abraham, uh, before the time of Moses. And, excuse me, before the time of Noah, excuse me. And Enoch was obviously a man of faith and obviously declared righteous by faith. But but the Bible doesn't use that specific phrasing having to do with uh, Enoch that it does use of Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that, that's really the reason there, um, Jordan, Uh It's that connection between the righteousness imputed to Abraham by faith. Okay, next question from uh, Popol Backyard Farm. What happened to Vashti, the book of Esther, after she was dethroned? Did he divorce her or did she just stay in the harem? Popol, let me tell you, from my uh, extensive study of this, I can tell you we have absolutely no idea. None. Uh, Look. The text just doesn't tell us. And there's a place for us with the Bible to say, I think in the words of uh, that Puritan commentator, John Trapp, um, where the text has no tongue, we should have no ears. Where the text doesn't speak, we shouldn't pretend like we're hearing something. And so the scriptures just don't say anything, except maybe it doesn't say there that he put her away. That could mean either that he divorced her in some sense Or it could mean that she was just excluded off into the harem. Um, Look, many of a king or influential man's wives in a harem uh, would not be wives that he would interact with in any kind of way. Um, They were just prestige there would be in a large harem, probably a smaller number of wives that he actually had any kind of interaction with. And so th- there were probably always some group of wives in a harem that were excluded and perhaps she was among them. But the bottom line is this, the scriptures just don't tell us, so we just can't say. Next question comes from Nancy, who asks, question, I'm confused by the apparent contradiction between 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, and chapter 3, verses 6 and 9. First, it says we all sin, and then it says that Christians can sin. Um, can't sin. Do you have any insights? Nancy, yes. And again, I would recommend to you for a little bit of a deeper dive on this, you could go to either the um, text commentary that I have, EnduringWord.com. I've got a, a verse-by-verse commentary throughout the whole Bible that some people find helpful. But uh, I'm sure that even on this very same, well, it might be only on my website, EnduringWord.com, where if you go to the audio, you can see the audio teaching that we have through uh, the letter of 1 John. And there it will detail that when John writes about the inability of a Christian to sin in 1 John, he is speaking about that in and we know this from the, the grammar that he used. We know this from the verb tenses that he used. Um, the verb tenses that imply an ongoing continual action. When he says that a Christian can't sin, the, the verb tense indicates that what he saying is that a Christian can't habitually sin. A, a Christian can't remain in habitual sin. And, and the way I usually phrase it is, and be comfortable. Now, now maybe for a season, a Christian is in habitual sin, but they're going to be tormented in their conscience. But because we have new life in Jesus Christ, that principle of new life argues against anyone being comfortable in habitual sin. Just sin doesn't abide in them the same way that it did before. So really, Nancy, what we're talking about here is the difference between Habitual sin and occasionally, every Christian occasionally sins. And when I say occasionally, I don't mean once every five years. I mean, look, if you define sin in its broadest way, falling short of the glory of God, well, then we, we sin probably every minute of the day in some way. But but every believer is aware that there's a difference between that and a conscious area of life that is not yielded to Jesus Christ and his lordship. Now, if you are a believer, and Nancy, I'm not speaking to you directly. I'm speaking to anybody here in our audience. If you are a believer, and you are mired in habitual sin, and it's just no problem for you at all, you that should worry you. I, I mean this genuinely. You need to examine yourself. To see if you're genuinely born again. Now, I'm cautious when I say that. Because we don't want to introduce unnecessary doubt into somebody's life uh, about them being a believer. However, by the same token, what a terrible thing it would be for somebody to just assume they were born again. For someone just to assume that they were a believer. And it not be true. And they only find that out when it's too late. So really, Nancy, the answer to your question is found in the grammar that John uses in that letter, a distinction between sin as sort of an occasional thing and sin as an entrenched habitual thing. You could take a look at the commentary and I think it'll point that out for you. Next question comes from Robert. Robert. Is it okay to divide and read the Bible dispensationally? Robert, thank you for your question. I'm going to be very straightforward. I don't know exactly what you mean by that. But I do think that it's fair and proper to read the Bible with a distinction between Israel and the church. And I think that when you come right down to it, that is the difference between dispensationalism and sometimes what is called covenant theology. There are a few critical points where the differences turn. One of those differences is this, is is there a distinction between the church and Israel? If one believes there is a distinction between the church and Israel, then I believe that in some form, and they could come in a lot of rise, in some form, you're a dispensationalist. Maybe not the minute charts, you know, that could fill up a whole wall, but you you believe not that there's different ways of salvation. No, we're not talking about that, but that God had a dealing with Israel and it has a dealing with the church and the two aren't identical. God deals with the church differently than he did with Israel and the church is something new, something different than Israel in the Old Testament. I think that fundamentally makes somebody a dispensationalist. And I think that is the proper way to read the Bible. All right, uh, let me go to this question. This is going to be the last question we take before the giveaway. So, after we're done with this question, we're going to collect the names. We have been collecting them all through, but we're going to make our drawing. So, here we go. Last question before the giveaway uh, asks... What is the believer's assurance of eternal life? Gustavo, thank you for that question. What a great question that is. And and I could just give you this. The assurance of the believer's eternal life is found in God, in the faithfulness of God's promise, that it is impossible for God to lie. So when he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When he says that whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That these are God's wonderful, beautiful promises that we can find great assurance in. That is the believer's assurance. The believer's assurance of salvation is not, um, oh, uh. I'm so, I'm such a great Christian, I can endure to the end. No, no, take heed. You're going to fall if you're thinking that way. The assurance of the believer's salvation is not, um, I'm so smart, I'm so holy, I'm so this, I'm so that. No, no, no. It is confidence in God and in his wonderful, amazing promise. All right, it's 10 minutes to the hour right now. Uh, We're going to close our uh, entries, and our team is going to get away and do the random drawing, and when they get word back to me, I'm going to announce a winner. I'm looking back over the instruction teams. I'm so grateful for the team we have. You know, uh, we have uh, Andrea, who does a great job as the general manager for Enduring Word. Uh, Then we have Annie, who does such a tremendous job with our social media and our version work. And on top of that, a lot of other things. Uh, we have Devin, who helps just get word out and is our moderator for our YouTube channel and helps out in many ways. Uh, we have Nathan, who does work with our video work and uh, very happy to bring him onto our team. And we've got tons of translators. Everywhere. we got an amazing team. And so they wrote me out. Annie wrote me and told me what I need to do. Uh, David will announce announce on the live stream that submissions are closed. Okay, that's my announcement. Submissions are closed. It's about 10 minutes before the end of the video. And then um, Devin is supposed to announce in chat that the submissions are closed. And he's going to run the random generator. We will have an answer back for you soon. And again, you need to... Oh, we have our answer. Here it is. Are you ready? Bob from Nightdale, North Carolina. You are our winner of our Playmobil figure. Uh, On the live chat, we're going to have some kind of email address or contact information for because, Bob, we need your postal address and we will send this to you right away. Congratulations, Bob from Nightdale, North Carolina. We are so pleased that you've been able to win today's uh, contest. And I'll tell you, I've got another contest in view, just to tell you, I haven't told my team about this, but um, I've got a book... And uh, again, I'll be honest, I don't know if I'm going to give away this copy or another copy, but when we get to 100,000 subscribers, I'm going to give away a copy of this book. Now, I don't know if it's this exact book or another copy of it that I have, but uh, The Story of My Life by William Taylor. It is an amazing book about an amazing man of God, and it's pretty cool looking, too. When we hit 100,000 subscribers, God willing, we will. I mean, it's not in our control. But we're going to have another giveaway then. So congratulations to you, Bob, from Nightdale, North Carolina. So pleased that you could win on today's program. All right. Um, Moderators, do we have any other questions? I'm sure you're scrambling, trying to get the information here. Uh, But Annie's told me who our winner was. And I take it that we're getting the... Oh, okay. Devin's doing his thing. (laughs) All right. I think we got this. All underway here. All right. Uh, Devin, are we going to have any more questions? Let me know by text message. If not, we'll wrap it up. Okay, we're good to go. Uh, Annie says, we got the information that we need. Thank you, Bob from Nightdale, North Carolina. I was just in North Carolina not too long ago, uh, preaching at a church outside of Fayetteville. So I don't know if Nightdale is anywhere near that. But Bob, I'm glad you could get one of these little toys. And... um I guess that's going to be it. Friends, let me say this. I wish you on behalf of our entire Enduring Word team, the merriest of Christmases. God has given us so many reasons to be grateful. We see his work doing. And uh, early next week, we're going to put out a brief video, less than 15 minutes, telling you some of what God has done in and through Enduring Word uh, over the year 2022. We are very, very grateful to God. We're very grateful to you, everybody who prays for our work. And please continue to pray. We believe that the reason God is doing so many wonderful things is that it's an answer to prayer. Uh, And we're also grateful for those who support the work. Um, We do have a little donor link on our website. And those who feel led to donate, look, we, we, we think that God blesses your partnership and that there's fruit from the ministry that, goes to your account, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. So, Merry Christmas from my wife, Ingolil, from myself, to all of you, so pleased that you could join us today. And God willing, and if we live, uh, we'll join again a couple days before the new year ends next Thursday. God bless you. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll see you the next time we have a broadcast. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.